Hello and welcome to the Effect podcast, Season 3, Episode 9. Name your character if you wish, it will not save you. My name is Matthew. And I'm Dave. And we, as usual, have got a bumper load of uh, stuff to talk about today. We are here recording nearly a couple of weeks after Dragon Meat, which was fabulous and naturally enough we are going to talk quite a bit about that today it was great it was a great event then we're going to talk a little bit now that alien rpg has uh, officially been launched as of ooh, three days ago from when we were recording um we had a couple of people asking about hopes last day that as you'll know matt and i produced for uh, for, for the book um and we'll talk a little bit about how the the life cycle the story of how hopes last day came about and how we ended up with that as the scenario. Um, World of Gaming, we've got a few things to talk about there, some really interesting stuff. And then Matthew is going to talk about Merkborg, a new game that's come out through the Free League, uh, Free League Workshop, I think, isn't it? Hmm. Then we have a, uh, a player in the Hammam, uh, Mira Manga, who was running the podcast zone at Dragon Meat. Matthew had a chance to chat to her for a few minutes about... Uh, about all of that and about her her um, her experiences of playing Coriolis, uh, which should be great. And then we'll wrap up with me talking a little bit about something which, again, a few alien players have, have, have raised, which is alien signature attacks against synthetics and androids. How should they work? So that is a packed agenda for today. That's a lot, isn't it? In fact, we should shut up and not do our usual banter about anything. Um <laughs> Because we haven't got time to waste. <laughs> we don't have uh, time to waste today. The slight change in the order then means that we're talking about World of Gaming a bit later on in the programme because we'll talk about Dragon Meat and Alien and stuff like that first. Um, but before that, let's say a big thank you to Nicholas Jarborg. Now, actually, Dave, you're the one with the better Swedish pronunciation. Is Jarborg right or is that a cheese? Well, it depends. <laughs> That's a bit harsh. It depends, because I haven't seen it written down properly. So you've written it down. I don't know whether the A after the J is a uh, an A, an air, or an er. So it's impossible right. to tell. So it could be Yerborg, it could be Yerborg, it could be Yerborg. Um, I'm checking what he said on Patreon right now. And obviously the, Just... o, the O of Borg could be Er as well. So that could be Berg rather than Borg. <laughs> so... Uh, you have so to... we're, we're just useless linguists, um, uh, generally. No, well, if, you'd written, if you'd written it down properly, I would have been able to pronounce it, or at least have a go. Well, actually, it is. I've written it down exactly, or not exactly, actually, um, but I've misspelled Nicholas. But uh, the surname is exactly as it appears on okay. Patreon. So thank you, Nicholas. Yes, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Even though Sorry, we've just, we've we've just put your, name your surname. Here, but, uh, Sorry about that. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, thank you very much for your support. It means such a lot to us. It does. And uh, Nicholas is really keen, by the way, uh, on, in Patreon. He's messaged us and he's hoping that um, we can get more of the stuff that we've written to talk about on the show, our essays, out in print in some form. So I promised him that we're working on that for the Free League Workshop. Yes. And uh, we should look forward to that. And some of it is already up on uh, both of our respective blog he sites. He has found our blogs already, yeah. but he'd like to have it all in one place. Yeah, that makes sense. And my, my, my and blog that one place should be the Free League Workshop, absolutely. 
Um, yes. And my blog's a little bit out of date. I haven't put a lot up there lately. So uh, no, yep. no, we've been we've been so busy. Somebody said to me, "Oh, I'm, I'm following your blog, but you're not putting much on it." Uh, and I realised that we haven't done much. No. We'll we'll put all the content from this episode on our blogs. PDQ. Yeah. How about that? We can make that promise at least. Yes. Next. next so next week for me. <laughs> yes. It, I mean, the, one wanna, of the reasons why we haven't we, been, we've been preparing for Dragon Meat, and then we've been recovering from Dragon Meat. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that. Indeed. What a great day. Yeah, I mean, my, my general reflections are this is the third year that I'd been to Dragon Meat as a uh, com- competitor, wrong word, as a as an exhibitor in one form or another, either as mm-hmm. part of the podcast zone or uh, as we were this time, Free League. Uh, it just gets better every year, frankly. Um, it gets bigger every year, which is brilliant. And um, just have such a great time. It's fabulous meeting all our old friends again. It's fabulous meeting all our new friends. It was fabulous to meet those people who are kind enough to um, support our Patreon page, who I hadn't met face-to-face before. So Jonathan, Neil, only obviously seeing Paul, um, as we met before. Um, fabulous. Really good. So And Phil. Let's not forget Phil. Well, yeah, who can forget Phil, eh? I, you know, he, Phil's so up there, actually, that, you know, I, he's he's above almost being a patron. He's... he's <laughs> He's he's more than patron. He's patron something. No, oh, oh, hold on. No favoritism here among our patrons. <laughs> no, not at all. Be no. careful. That's true. Back off. But Back he, off. He, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start making that beeping noise that a bus that buses make when they reverse. No, I mean, uh, but he, uh, he, he Phil does, is he, equally as lovely as all our patrons. I'm sure he does have a very good alien alien thing for his hat, which is which is what yes. I meant to say. No, it was fabulous. It was great meeting them all. It was fabulous having some of them um, play in the Grindbone 2183 uh, tournament as well. Uh, yeah. I yes, just... Neil in, in particular uh, played in that. How did he do? No, Neil played in that um, and Jonathan played in that. So Neil did really well. He got through to the final. He did end up cornered in a cell. Well, actually, spoilers, because these the, the, fi- we, the final we, isn't out yet we, as we, we did record. We, we did record the um the tournament it's been going out uh, i think there's one episode left to go which is the final um neil made it to the final i won't spoil that but neil did do well, something well you can spoil it actually because that's going out tonight and this isn't ah okay cool yeah so so fine so so neil um very bravely took on as uh, a xenomorph drone um hand to hand did actually damage it when he punched it in the head, but was uh, inevitably mercilessly killed after that. Um, Jonathan unfortunately had a had a, a much worse fate, in that he was in one of the heats. He'd done all, done everything right. He'd gone up to the uh, upper level. He'd found himself a suit of armor. He was looking for a weapon when one of the other players came up behind him without him seeing, whacked him on the head with a wrench and put him out in one blow. <laughs> put him out in one blow. <laughs> oh, no. Now, um, I haven't listened to every moment of these things. Obviously, I've been doing, listening to quite a chunk of them, you know, checking sound quality and doing noise reduction and, and yeah. clipping and stuff like that. What I didn't hear was anybody finding any of the guns that I'd left in that place. Did anybody pick up a gun? Nope, nobody found a gun. Um, frankly, they didn't really have a lot of chart, lot of time to search for things. So one thing that I found was we, and this is really actually almost inexcusable for for GMs like us with such a lot of experience. We woefully underestimated how long each round was going to take. 
Um, we, we gave each round 30 minutes thinking, yeah, a couple of xenomorphs, everyone will be dead, you know, really quickly. Um, the first round took an hour and five minutes to run. The second round took 55 minutes. And it's thanks to Mira, who is obviously on the show later on, um, that she, and we had a bit of space behind us that we were able to extend. Um, otherwise, we'd have run out of time completely. Yeah, so, we started half an hour early thinking, oh, luxury. But, um, yeah, but yeah. No. Um, but it... Uh, uh, it, it it was great. I mean, it was it was really well done. Everyone came through it with the right attitude. Everyone got really stuck in and, and enjoyed the game. But we didn't really have time to hang about. Certainly in the later the, the later rounds and the final, I really had to just chuck chuck them into it almost right in the in the middle of it to begin with. Only uh, simply to be able to get us through to the to the end in the time I had available. But it was it was brilliant. Yeah. Really good. So, but that's not the only thing we did. I mean, it was thoroughly no. enjoyable, <clears throat> I'm sure. I wasn't there. I was working the stall at the time. You were. You and the others, Tony and Morgan, who helped us out, which is brilliant. Busy selling every copy of Alien that we had, and we could have sold at least that many again. Um, the other thing that was wonderful was we also sold every copy of Forbidden Lands that we, we had sent over to us. We sold all of the Forbidden Lands. We sold all of the Tales from the Loop. Things from the Flood, sadly, didn't sell as well as I'd hoped, because that is a great game. I do wonder if it's, as I said you know, the other week, languishing in the shadows of all the other games a little bit, which is a real pity. And we did sell some Coriolis, which was fabulous. We sold all the Coriolis. Yeah. We sold our stock of Coriolis, which originally we weren't going to get any stock of that to no. sell at all. So, uh, so yeah, that feels good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was great. We There was obviously a big rush in the morning when pretty much everybody... And their wives wanted <laughs> a copy of uh, Alien, <clears throat> so we sold out of that first, didn't we? I think, um, uh, even though we had about fifty copies of that, we sold out of that within two hours. And I think, I think Forbidden Lands went first, didn't it? Because we had fewer copies of that. Yeah, so but I, think I think we still had a copy left. Well, although. Anyway, this I'd is, this opened a copy because I think Forbidden Lands really sells when you hold the books. Yeah, true. And yeah. so we did have that sort of demo copy that we we kept for a bit and then sold. So maybe we'd sold out of all the sealed copies before we'd sold the last Alien. Possibly, yeah. Um, maybe. Um, but, but I it, do think I think we're looking forward to a 2020 that will be out there in the wider world. The 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 year of free league. Yes. Uh, yeah. This. The Alien has definitely put them on the map and people are going to discover all their other great games yeah. and uh, be raving about them. Did you see that... Sweep um, the board. Did you see that Alien um, has topped the drive through Exactly, list? number one number on drive through on the PDF. Number one, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really good. And, I, you know, I, I don't want to, to, to prejudge anything, but it feels like it's it, it ought to get some pretty good recognition from conventions and judges and competitions over the next 12 months i think so i think so too yes yes but yeah but moving back on you said um you mentioned the panel so it was a panel run by our friend chris handley from darker days radio and it was a horror role-playing game um panel uh, i was the least experienced <laughs> of all the panelists um in terms of of um actually producing stuff in the industry but obviously, um, possibly the oldest person on the panel, just about <laughs> otherwise. Um, and that was brilliant. That was really good. We had about an hour, hour and 10 minutes of, of excellent conversation. Um, the, the audience 
got stuck in as well. We had about 20 people in the audience, which was really nice for what was basically the last slot on the day. And a lot of people had gone home by then, I think. And that was a great chat. So I, I really, I really um, encourage people to go and look up Darker Days Radio. Uh, well, look it up anyway, if you haven't been listening to it. That's, it's a brilliant podcast. And um, have a listen to the uh, to the recording of, of that. There were some really interesting points that were brought out if you're interested in horror role-playing. Uh, and that is coming out next week. I just um, communicated it- with Chris and said, when, when when's the recording going to come out? So next Friday's episode, I think, of Darker Days Radio will have that recording. Talking of dragon meat and alien, we've had a couple of questions about alien and we thought we'd discuss one of them now. Yeah. Uh, but Dave, you got the question, so maybe you want to tell us what the question is. Yeah, so I, uh, I'm i a member of uh, Alien RPG Discord community and... Um, one of the uh, one of my friends there, guy who goes by the handle of Wolfclaw, was chatting to me um, and was asking a little bit about how we, what was the sort of the the creative design process that got us to to where we were with Hope's Last Day, and rather than spend hours typing on Discord, I thought, why don't we just talk about it, um, and then put the link to the podcast on Discord. Exactly. Plan. Indeed. So. Um, so what, what what do you think he's looking for? Uh, the process of scenario design or the story of us um, uh, coming up with the idea or what? No, so Wolfclaw was saying that he's um, relatively new to role-playing and relatively new to GMing. So um, he was interested in our thoughts about the sort of creative process and how we actually designed the scenarios. So I think that's the angle we want to come from rather than right, yes. the, bo- the boring old story of us at UK Games Expo. Which everyone's probably heard by now. No, but I think I think there is a key point we should say in that this isn't the sort of scenario you would design, would have designed for a full session, like the recent one that we played, Aurora. Um, oh, Alien Aurora, yeah, the um, the cinematic yeah, so scenario that, that I'm writing up, yeah. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what you did in putting that together in mm. terms of helping him design scenarios for his session. Yeah. Because... So, his, so his question is here. He says, how long does it take you to write down new content? Where do you get the inspirations for them? Um, I'm currently working on my campaign, and so far the beginning looks great, but I'm still a very fresh RPG player GM. Okay. So... Right. So I, I think my first point, just campaign-wise, don't worry about the rest of the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> take yeah. each scenario in turn. Because I think, you know, if you pl- if you map out your campaign, the first thing your players will do is turn left and <laughs> yeah. walk in a direction directly opposite where your campaign is mapped out to. So, um, yeah. so don't, don't get bogged down in writing up too much stuff. Um, yeah. There may be some key things you're hoping to lead them to and you might think, I want this sort of scene happening. But I think coming back to Hope's Last Day, there were some key things that we wanted to put in there that made it very easy for us to put the scenario together. Mm. And it is important to say that we were doing it as a convention demo scenario. So that has an implication on on how we structured it, how much writing there is and stuff like that, which might be different for a home game. So because it was a convention demo scenario, we wanted two things. We wanted it to be relatively short and simple and we wanted it to have aliens in and proper aliens None of your neomorphs from Prometheus or whatever. We wanted alien-type xenomorphs. 
And um, so that that's that's I think where we started from, isn't it? Yes, very much so. And I think the 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 original kind of commission for us in the first place before it was um, uh, suggested that Hope's Last Day, as it as it was finally written, would be in the book, was to prepare the uh, convention demo games for UK Games Expo last year. And we decided, because it was a demo scenario, we were effectively launching straight into the third act of a cinematic. But we decided in our uh, sort of dis- discussions before we got to around to writing them that it would be really quite good to have try and have a three-act kind of feel to it. So we ended up doing three third acts, effectively, which were yeah. um, Hope's Last... Um, Hope's Last Hand. Hope's Last Chance. Oh, Hope's Last Hope, Hand. Hope's Last Hand, Hope's Last Dance, and Hope's Last Stand. And the three of them were yeah. intended to... One was a kind of like um, space trucker style of heist. One was mm-hmm. colonist-based, where you're just trying to survive. And the third one was more of a colonial marine combat kind of thing. You're the militia trying to make one last stand against the aliens. And that was where we came from um, in our in our setup for, for those scenarios. But in each one... It was it was it was important to um, I think to, to do what you would normally do for a kind of horror style game, which is to build the tension as slowly as you could. Now it's difficult for us in a convention game that was only going to run ninety minutes that you can't linger too long on that stage because you've got a lot of role playing and gaming to get through um, to finish the game on time. But uh, so I think in that one it was certainly from from my point of view you were trying just to get the tension going right at the start, which um, in Hope's Last Day you get that because you, you start the scenario. As written anyway, you start the scenario when you sort of step into the action almost yeah. at the end. I, it's Interestingly, though, I have seen a number of people, including my son Morgan, who ran it, who took the scenario back a step um, and had, had you going out and then breaking down. So he didn't he allowed yeah. you to role play all of that rather than um, rather than uh, hand wave it as part of the introduction, which I thought was really good. Which is one of the really good things about the way Free League have had us write these scenarios. And the same goes for Chariot of the Gods. You have your location, you have your setting, and your you know what's the story, mother. But you've got the location. So the great thing with Hope's Last Day is you've got, as you said at the start, a relatively simple and straightforward scenario but it's set in Hadley's Hope and you've got the yeah. information for Hadley's Hope. You've got the location, you've got the maps, you've got you know, some detail about all of the locations and you can do what you like with it. It's, it's both a sandbox and a relatively simple scenario uh, all in one that allows you to run it depending on how much time you've got and how much um, imagination, imagination you have about what you want to do at Hadley's Hope. Um, I've had some people talk to me about running aliens using all of that. So you know you just basically play out the play out the scenario the the film. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, if we go back to when we originally had the idea of putting it there, it was a, quite a flippant little joke actually. In that we'd got the play test packet, hadn't we, from the guys at Free League? So we were among the first people in the world with the rules. Our group, uh, your brother Andy, didn't know that we'd even got these things yet because we were under an NDA. Yeah. And we did start off by saying. Or wouldn't it be fun to be playing a game of um, 
of 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 Tales from the Loop, but setting it on Hadley's Hope mm-hmm. and give people Tales from the Loop characters and have them, you know, As kids. solving yeah. a mystery, what, <laughs> yeah. what's going on in the med bay, and then when they see um, their parents uh, getting killed by the alien, then switching out and giving them alien characters. So mm-hmm. that, that was our idea of using Hadley's Hope. And it's kind of slightly... We had to kind of negotiate that with Free League when it then came to putting it in the book. <clears throat> well, it wasn't, because it wasn't so much Free League. It was more they, their, their with con- Fox. contacts with Fox because their, cons- yeah. their concern was... Uh, Hadley's Hadley's hope's been done. Um, it's been in lots of books. It's been in the films. Everyone knows it. It's it's not necessarily exactly in the timeline of where the alien yeah. book starts. So it's slightly ahead of that. Um, but Thomas and the Freely guys had understood how 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 good it would be to have Hadley's hope in the book and understood where we were coming from, and and they argued in favour of keeping it and. As you can see, it's in the book, and I think it's absolutely the right idea. I think it would have been, um, it sort of would have been great if it had been, you know, Bob's base or something. But having Hadley's Hope, which everybody knows, everybody recognises, uh, everyone understand has their own feeling about it because they've seen Aliens. I think that was actually a stroke of genius, almost. Yeah, and actually, again, you know, we, there were lots of uh, uh, approximations and plans of Hadley's Hope on the internet which you know various different versions which inspired us in different ways but one of the key things that we we made quite essential to our thinking for all those three scenarios initially but then also for the one in the book uh, when opening in the book we were limited for space and and the freely guy said you know why don't you just have one floor of Hadley's Hope and we argued that we wanted to retain as many locations as we could yeah because those locations themselves are inspirations for adventures. Yeah. And yeah. I think one of the things for me that uh, uh, I think best illustrates that is doing one of the other scenarios, actually, Hope's Last Hand, which is a heist on a casino before they realise that the place is infested with aliens. Um, there was a sort of tunnel connecting the building we'd put the casino in to the command centre. And I thought, I don't think that's very likely to be... A, a, a used tunnel now wouldn't that be a great place to hide the aliens so that's mm. the aliens base because it's a disused tower now and we you know we fill it for the stuff we turn the lights out and that's where the alien is mm. moving from and 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 building its thing before it builds the nest that they eventually in the, in the, process, the process yeah and so you know that location itself gave us an idea for a thing an encounter that might happen and then Blow me down if everybody didn't go across that bridge and meet the alien when we were playtesting at UCAC. <laughs> so, you know, that was a thing that might happen. It wasn't part of any of the actual adventures, really. That was just, that's where it goes. And here's a description of what it's like, full of boxes, mm. the lights aren't working. And so I think one of the important things when you're planning out a scenario is you may have a storyline, but it's also worth just putting a few lines down for locations that the players might never go to but might when if they do go there might actually inspire a whole different adventure yeah and i think that that's that's the great thing about the the, the way that um you know, free league want want your know, freelancers like us to to write these scenarios where you have you have events and the events some of them if you're going to run the scenario as intended some of them will be complete. you'd have to run those events if you want to run the scenario that way a lot of them are entirely optional um 
and you can obviously throw your own ones in if you have a good idea. And that's that, that works really nicely because it not only um, allows you to run the scenario on pretty strict lines if you want to, if you're short for time, say, at a convention, but also it allows you to go off those rails as far as you like. And it, it as I said, it, it's on the one hand, it's it's a almost a complete sandbox. At the other hand, it can be as railroady as you need it to be if you've got limited time. Yeah, if you've got it, 90 minutes, you can railroad the players. <laughs> if you've got time to play... Give them, give them the space to play. Yeah, exactly. Let it breathe. Um, so I think this, so. So we had all of that. Then, then um, part of the problem that you alluded to was clearly the, there was a word limit. There was a amount of space in the book, and we could have no more. So when it came to selecting which of those three scenarios um, they wanted us to lead with, they wanted us to lead with Hope's Last Dance, which was the colonist one. They didn't want us to have it as the band, which we'd put into the demo, yeah. which is quite fun. That's the best thing ever. But I can understand. That's the best I, idea. They're just taking it out. I can understand that. Um, but they were looking at it very, very uh, firmly from a uh, from a point of view of, we've got this book, 400 pages, we've got this amount of space for this bit. And obviously they were juggling everything else at the same time. We were only working on this one small part of it. I'm, and I, was, mm. I was working on the Xenomorph um, stats and attacks as well. But... Otherwise, we would just work on this very small part of it. So uh, I think for them, it's very easy to say, right, lose the basement. That's an easy way to get rid of a load of words. Um, we argued against it. Uh, some of the best moments in the, the demos that I ran happened in the basement for various yeah. reasons. There are certain events that can happen down there. Um, and they agreed, but we then had to cut the words right down. So I remember spending a lot of time thinking, okay, I've got to lose 800 words out of this 900 word <laughs> description you know um which is fun it was a good exercise in in drafting and we got the essence of what we wanted so that worked but i out. think that's an, an important point there about um your your correspondent asked you know how much how long does it take to write all this stuff down yeah is actually you don't need to write <clears throat> all that stuff down and indeed you know we we edited out a whole or you edited out a whole bunch of my lovely words for some of those Basement descriptions, bastard. <laughs> sad, uh, sad and, there wasn't much of yours left in it at the end, but yeah, uh, and and but despite the fact that all that gold, gold dust, honestly, <laughs> uh, was taken out, it hasn't affected the scenario that badly. Uh, no, it hasn't has affected it? the scenario at all, actually. No, because okay. as with all these things, the, the, the what's written down in the scenario will not survive first contact with your players. So don't yeah. over, don't overdo it. I think one of the things that a lot of new players who perhaps have only played D&D um, suffer from, is you see a D&D module, it's packed full of tech. You've got sort of, you know, three or four paragraphs to, to explain the description of a particular room. No, we don't need to do that at all. It's way too much. If there's some important elements of that room that you want to make sure you reflect when you run the game, put a couple of lines down, a couple of bullet points, um, and leave it at that. You don't need to go into the, all that kind of flowery language um, when you're writing these kind of things. And in fact, you know, it's quite hard, actually, um, to pull yourself back from that. So the you mentioned Alien Aurora, this cinematic scenario that um, I've written. And I've written it in the style that Free League would expect. Um, I've got no idea whether they're going to want to pick it up or not, but they, they might, you never know. So I've written it in that form. I, I'm going through the process at the moment of trying to cut out half the words. Because I know if they do want to look at it, the first thing they'll say is make it half as long <laughs> straight away. Um, 
I guess maybe that argues for me putting more words in, and then when they say make it half as long, I've got more space to play with. But uh, um, you don't you have to. Again, the point I'm making is you don't have to overburden your scenario with unnecessary language and words. Now, a few, uh, as you say, bullet points to remind you what you're imagining the place might be like, but then, you know, keep the description actually as light as possible, I think, when you're doing a home game. Yeah. Um, so that you can make stuff up on the spot or, you know, the players can say, is there a thing here? And you can go, yes, there is. It's over there to the right-hand side. Yeah. I think, you know, doing even detailed technical maps can be, um, a bit of a problem in that they can become a limit and so can yes. all the words yep. in a published scenario. Absolutely. I think the reason why they do, they have more words in published scenarios are, um, well, sometimes writers get paid by the word, <laughs> but also, uh, you know, you've got to bulk it out a little bit. I and mean, if somebody paid any money at all for a scenario and then got the sort of notes that I write for some of my things yeah. and feel they were ripped off. No, but I, th um, I think also there's a really good point there that when you're writing for somebody else to take your scenario and run it, you don't have all that stuff you've got loaded in the back of your mind no. um, that you don't bother putting down on the paper. But when you're doing it for somebody else, you have to somehow get all of that reference material, all those ideas on the page so they can pick those up as well. And that's really, that could be quite hard to do in, yeah. a, in a concise way. I found that um, with these recent scenarios. And in fact, when we were on. writing the, the stuff for the scenarios, even though the audience was only each other, yeah. you know, I think we felt we had to describe what was in our heads yeah. for each other because so, we were going to be running each other's scenarios. And I think so interest, interesting that was in my mind. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, both you and I, when we we went away to write our respective first drafts of those scenarios and came back that the product that we brought back looked totally different from one another. So the way, mm. the way it was set up, the way it was written, how much detail you put in, I think you had yours sort of on a side and a half and I had about 10 pages or something, um, which is just, again, just reflects our different styles as GMs in when we actually create stuff. Um, which is, is going to be, everyone's going to have a unique style. So if you're writing something for somebody else, you have to bear that in mind and try and make sure you get enough information down that they pick up your idea in the same way. You know, it's a Chinese whispers thing, isn't it? You put, you yeah. put, you put, you don't put enough down, they pick up your idea, but it's subtly different. Now it might be better, actually, um, the idea they pick up, but it might not be. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fine balance to, to, to find there. The other thing I would say about campaign games that you mentioned earlier is when I'm, preparing a new campaign I will have an idea of what kind of the core protagonist is, who they might be and what their overarching sort of object, objective and motivation would be um, but then I don't worry about it too much I might think about okay what are they doing what, what does the bad guy do that impacts on the lives of your players and then that forms the scenario so the bad guy might rob a bank or they might murder somebody that they know, and it's you've got, to, you've got to. What I'm driving at is you've got to see how do the how does your player group view what's their perspective on the actions and the activities, the adventure that's happening that you want them to get engaged with. How much of that do they see, and why do they see what they see, and that's based on the motivation and the objectives of the big bad guy. Yes, I'm not sure how well I explain that, but. <clears throat> Yeah, but I think that is a key thing. You, just, you know, particularly in a game like this, where 
okay, you're gonna have monsters uh, of various sorts, but they're they're kind of procedural in that you know what what you do is you create an attack table and you roll a d6 for how they behave. But people are their their behavior is infinite. So you've got to have an idea about what their motivations are, what they want out of the world, but don't fill it with too much detail. No, because it's going to be how do your players react to them. And just enough clues to say, oh, well, how do they then re- react to the player's reaction? Um, yeah, yeah, indeed. Just one other point. Uh, we're, we're talking about this quite a lot, but I think there's another interesting point about what we did in Hope's Last Day and writing scenarios, especially for campaigns. Uh, and it, it comes out, actually, of a comment that I've been talking on Twitter with uh, one of our uh, listeners and a co-host of a podcast called Idle Red Hands, and they, you know, they they got hopes last day, and they said, "Well, the thing is, it feels like a it rushes to the end too quickly." And of course, it's a third act of a scenario, so yes, mm. it does. And they wrote uh, different uh, agendas so that they could do the agenda swapping thing that happens in a cinematic scenario. Mm, yeah, we've only given all the characters their one agenda yeah. and it's a third act style agenda it makes things happen you know like like in a third act yes um so it might be a thing that you want to practice at and I, and i think actually writing agendas for cinematic scenarios is quite difficult as we found with um with aurora in that sometimes one's person at two agenda might totally nullify another player's at three agenda so yeah. So that's one thing so I'm trying to adjust in the redraft for uh, Aurora is to try and take away mm. that risk because yeah, as you said, there there was there is an action that one of the characters took, which, as you said, I took. To- God, blame me. <laughs> which was an entirely reasonable and justified action uh, for you and to dramatic. do. And dramatic and draft. It was it yeah. was good actually. It was it was it was very good. Um, but it did take away completely the 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 agenda for the third act for one of the other players. So. That's that's a you know this is playtesting so I've learned that and I'll change that for the next one but it's a it's a risk that you need to bear in mind if you're doing agendas for an alien game absolutely for a cinematic game yeah. now of course they're a bit different in campaigns so it's probably less of a risk when you're when you're planning scenarios for campaigns mm. um, it's interesting whilst we've been recording um, somebody else on the um, uh, Lux, on the alien discord Lux on the alien discord had said. Um, I was wondering, how did you settle on Hadley's Hope as the setting for the cinematic? Was it <laughs> what was it that suited your intentions for the story? So I said, I'm recording my next podcast right now, which covers this exact point. I'll post it here once it's published. So, um, yeah, well, yeah, excellent. Someone here then said, ah, um, a guy called Matt Devdug came up and said, oh, oh man, so cool. Well, hey, as a rookie GM, I appreciate how easy Hope's Last Day is to run. That's great feedback. Thank you. Whoa. Yeah, that yeah. is. And it is. And I think this is a really important point about the Alien game is it's bringing more rookie GMs to the table. Yes. Which can only be good for the hobby as a whole. Absolutely. So that's really great to hear. Yeah, absolutely. However, we have got the rest of the podcast. <laughs> we and we were supposed to try and not talk too much today, didn't we? Let's launch straight into the world of gaming then. We've already mentioned the Free League Workshop. Um, did you want to say anything else about that? I think there's some news. Yeah, there? so our, our latest uh, rumour on that, uh, clue on that, is the Free League Workshop is going to be going live next calendar year in February, early February. So uh, hopefully we'll have this Christmas period, uh, Dave, you and I, to to 
redo some of our some of our content and get that onto the workshop ready mm. for that launch. Not sure when I'm going to get the time to do that, but I'll do my yeah, best. Yeah, well, no <clears throat> I, I, you, you said last uh, uh, last time we recorded that I should get um, the song to the siren. Yeah, um, I think you should. That that that's um, so that's, that's going to be my project. That's a great scenario, um, and doing that as kind of a a one shot or a opening scenario into some kind of campaign. Um, now that was, you know, I, I I don't pay you compliments very often, Matt, but that was um, an excellent, really good couple of scenarios. Um, well, it's one scenario we just took a long time to well, play. A couple of <laughs> sessions, then, yeah, Ses- um, yeah. <laughs> But so, uh, yeah, if anyone's listening and you see that up on the Free League Workshop um, and you like Coriolis, or even if you don't like Coriolis, but you fancy giving it a try, get that Song for the Siren. It was it was a great scenario. But what I have to do is turn it from a page and a half of scrappily written notes into something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah. As we were discussing before. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just the other thing I thought in the world of gaming, it's not new. Um, well, it's not new to me, but it's new to you. A couple of weeks ago, I think you played Blades in the Dark. Yes, yeah, I've had a couple of games of that now. Um, recommended to me by you, and then one of my one of my friends here, who um, who who's in the board gaming group that I don't tend to get to very often, um, came up and said, "Oh, I've found this new game. I really want to run it." And it happened to be Blades in the Dark. So, um, <laughs> first things first, just as a very parochial kind of little thing. Um, my friend Paul, who's been running it, um, well, he's run it once, and his son Connor's run it once. He's got some kind of industrial printer for his company, and he printed out oh, right. uh, like a five foot by five foot map of Duskfall in really good oh. quality. So that just sits on the table. It's absolutely brilliant. It, I mean, it really makes it. I mean, I know people don't have access to that kind of uh, uh, kit very often, but having the map... It's called a plotter, Dave. Is it? Well, I don't know. I'm, yeah. I've, got, I've got a shit little printer here that won't even do bloody landscape printing at the moment, um, which is a right pain in the ass. Anyway, um, it's brilliant. But yeah, so the game, um, I'm still coming to grips with it a little bit because the, the, the approach is a bit different. Um, it's great fun. The, um, the, the idea that you have your, your little gang of ne'er-do-wells and we are a bunch of just thieves and saboteurs. And you go and do heists and things, and you you throw yourself into the action without any or much planning, but then you kind of retrospectively plan through a mechanism yeah. called flashbacks, which is a really nice idea. It's a really nice idea for um, getting the players to engage in the narrative style of the, of the game, which is really nice. I love that, but it's a bit hard to get around when I've spent my entire gaming career. Um, planning stuff in advance. <laughs> you know? So actually getting used to the fact that you effectively flashback to plan stuff in advance when you find out what problems you've come across is, uh, yeah, is, I've just got to get my brain around it. Um, but it, I mean, it's good. It, work, it works really nicely. The, the, the rule system is very simple. Um, the... the um, the character archetypes are really fun. Uh, I'm playing a leech, a leech or a lurker. I can't remember anyone, but saboteur, um, who learnt his trade at the uh, at the feet of the professors in the in the university where I was the janitor. But I'm so I'm so nondescript. Everyone looks through me and just talks and as if I'm not there. So I obviously picked up lots of stuff just by listening to them talking whilst I was dusting their offices. 
Um, but now I'm a, now I'm a criminal <laughs> in this game. Um, but it's really uh, good. No, I, I really enjoyed the game I played, and I've bought, and I think we spoke about this before. I bought recently Band of Blades, which is a more military uh, campaign version of that rule set. Ah, okay. Um, I'm interested in trying that. One thing I thought that this would work really well, the rule system, the way way it's worked, in my experience anyway, given there's only two games, it would be perfect for a Firefly campaign. Absolutely perfect. Yeah. It would be... Well, there is another version of the rules called Scum and Villainy, and uh, that is has got three or four sort of settings. One of which is Star Warsy yeah. uh, uh, stuff. One of which though is very much a Firefly ah, type thing. Cool. So, so yes, yeah, somebody's already had that idea. Yeah, and it, made money out of it. It fits perfectly because the first heist we were doing, which was basically robbing the, the 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 money stash of a rival gang, basically from under their noses whilst they were fighting another gang. I just I was just in it and thinking this is Firefly. <laughs> what am I doing in Duskfall? You know, I'm I'm being Mal Reynolds here. This is brilliant. But yeah, really good. Ah, that's good. Um, now we ought to get on. Keep keep the pressure on because. Uh, yep, yep, yep. This will be a long program. Uh, so the other bit of news uh, can sort of segue into my next essay. It can. And that is, I got a delivery of a fabulous book. Called pronounce it right. Pronounce texture. it right. Pronounce it right. Called Merkborg. Hey, yes. Uh, and it's uh, in Swedish. That means the dark tower or the dark fort. Um, and uh, well, tell you what. Stop listening to me. Instead, listen to me. <laughs> we don't do reviews. We tell you about the games we like because we play those games. We occasionally tell you about what we don't like about the games we play, but we tell you these things because we play the games. If we were a review podcast, we'd have to play the games and we don't have time to play all the games that we've already got. So, like I said, we don't do reviews. But here I am reviewing Merc Borg. And we haven't played it. So what the hell am I doing? Well, first of all, let's talk about why I backed the Kickstarter. The first reason was that this is a book that comes with Free League's name on it. Though that's only one of the names. This is, in many respects, an indie project. Supported with Free League Publishing's experience and distribution. It demonstrates how the Free League has grown. When they first started publishing in English, they looked to Modifius for their experience in publishing networks. Now they are in a position to take a similar mentoring role for the creators of Merck Borg. As an aside, it's interesting to note that there are two Free League logos on the cover. Their standard publishing logo type and one for the Free League workshop the brand that will soon appear on drive-thru as an outlet for fan-created content. All that content will, I think, be supplementary material for most of the company's stable of Year Zero game engines and Simbaroom, not standalone games like this one. The other reason I backed it was the typography. 
I am a typography snob ever since I trained with proper metal type back in art school and the sample pages on the Kickstarter campaign convinced me I had to have this book, even if I never played the game. So it is in that spirit with which I am reviewing Merc Borg, not so much as a game, but as a book for your library. We'll therefore return to typography in a while. But first I want to talk about how the book feels. Never has so much thought gone into RPG texture. I've raved before about how the texture of the Forbidden Lands book is exactly right for the neo-traditional nature of that game, but I'm blown away by the mix of textures in this slim volume. You may already have seen the rushed unboxing video I made for our new YouTube channel, and if you have, you'll note that I couldn't stop fondling the book. It starts with the subtle embossing of the illustration on the front cover, and it ends with how different signatures, the blocks of pages that are sewn into a hardback, are made with different qualities of paper, so that the rules are smooth and the scenario is rougher. This is not a book that you want to buy on PDF. Actually, there is another reason you don't want the PDF. In a rare lack of attention to detail, the PDF has been compiled without separating the cover from the interior spreads. So where the design goes over two pages, and it frequently goes over two pages, PDF readers can't appreciate the beauty of the layout. Huh. Looks like we're talking aesthetics already. So be it. The book looks gorgeous. It has the aesthetics of the photocopied punk rock fanzines of the 70s and 80s. But that analogy does not do it justice, because if you haven't seen it, you'll be thinking it's black and white. It isn't. It's a riot of colour, with cadmium yellow colours, bright emo pinks, it switches between monotone, spot colour, three colour and full colour printing between spreads. It even uses metallic foil. It is only a slim book, but every turn of the page is a surprise and a delight. I said we'd talk again about typography. Now, you should understand that as a typography snob, I hate, hate, hate poor use of type. Every time my co-host Dave sends me a document, I wince at his choice of typefaces, the way he uses too many different fonts, underlines all his titles. I'm tensing up just talking about it. I tell people again and again that just because your computer comes with a gazillion fonts, it doesn't mean you have to use any more than two in a document. They use more than two fonts in Merkborg. There are over a hundred, but they use them so well. Every spread is a delight. There's a crazy logic to all their choices. In the hands of most people, this would be a hot mess. But the designer, Johan Noor, knows and loves his type. This is the work of a master. He is also responsible for the illustrations, which have the carefree mastery of early Picasso sketches each one simultaneously looking like something you doodled in your exercise book at school and something you could never draw as well, 
not even with a hundred years of practice. So let's talk about the system. Now, I'm not a fan, or indeed any sort of expert, in that gaming thing called OSR. Hell, I don't even know what the R stands for. Is it old school rules, revival or renaissance? In fact, just about the only thing I do know is that the OSR community can't agree what the R stands for either. However, I think I have just taken delivery of an OSR game. Do correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand OSR games to be based upon a stripped-down, rules-like take on the early versions of D&D, and this bears all the hallmarks of that philosophy. Regular readers will know that I'm not a fan of the D20 and its linearity. But there are things I read in this book that almost, almost make me want to play the game. For a start, there are no character classes. Well, there are, but that's an optional rule. You start your character by rolling a d6 and a couple of d12s to find out what equipment you have. The d6 gives you things you can carry stuff with, and the d12s give you stuff. Then you roll a d10 for your weapon. Oh, the typography. Oh, the layout. The weapons table is three pages long. And there are only ten items on it. This might sound like a bad thing, but it is not. It is a thing of ugly, punkish beauty. You roll for your ability bonuses too. A traditional 3d6 for each and hit points. Then step five is, and I quote, Name your character if you wish. It will not save you. Yes. The setting is very dark. How dark? As dark as confronting your worst self on a moonless night in a cellar with a blindfold. This world is ending. There is no way to save it. Your characters are scrabbling for some tiny comfort, some... Well, you're right about one thing, Matt. We don't do end. reviews. So I Which think... Is if, so we'll just... Cut that bit According out of the podcast. The We're not bothering with that there. anymore. Because um, <laughs> we don't do reviews. For six um, to come true. The other thing I would say, in my defence, seeing you so <laughs> egregiously attack me every time, um, burn the book. I, I agree with you, and I disagree with you, and I'll explain why. Which is so, why um, I will never play. I totally agree. I Two fonts to and simple I topography is right this. for something that you're producing for a product. Or if you're writing it for Free League, for them to then put into the right thing. When I produce stuff, for me, I like to make it look good on my eye, which is why I put highlights in and put underlines in to draw my eye. But it doesn't look good, It does. It looks good for me. That's the point. It, you might not like it with your obsessive oh, topography, topography thing about you, which you maybe you might need to get over a little bit. Um, but it works for me. So, but I, I do take your point that for other people yeah. looking at it, it would be better if I didn't fancy it up. But for me, it helps me when I'm going back to it to look at it. If I'm, like, for example, um, Alien Aurora that we talked about earlier, um, if you looked at that, you would want to murder me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I would. <laughs> um, but for me, in running the game, it works because it draws my eye to the right bit of thing in the right moment. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. But okay. cool. No, really good. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I mean, will so just say, if you 
doing stuff for submission to somebody, then actually one font is all you need. Yeah. Double spaced and uh, various uh, codes H1, H2 for yeah. heading levels and stuff like that. Well, usually um, if, you, if you're doing submission for somebody else, they will tell you what format they want it in. And then you can, yeah. work, you can work off that. Yeah. But yes, it's good advice. Um, but yeah, so I haven't seen this book other than a picture of it online. Um, but I'm, I'm guessing... Watch my video you like, on our new YouTube channel. I'm guessing you like it? I really like <laughs> it. I, I, I'm, I, I almost want to play it, even though there are many things I... You know, I'm not at all interested in a D20 system. No. I mean, we, we do Simbroom, that's D20 enough for me. And it's one of those ones where I think the whole idea is you're not meant to live very long and it's... But but just the character generation made me go, oh, I really want to roll up a character and mm. play this. Yeah, that's, but, um, that sounds nice and simple and straightforward, which is often a good thing. Yeah. I think the other thing that kind of struck me, is this is this kind of a, a narratively focused game more? Or is it a... Um, no, there's a dungeon. More GM-driven I mean, game. I mean, it gives you a setting and the setting is horrible and everybody's going to die. Uh, the rules, including um, monsters and stuff like that, are 71 pages. Right. And then there's uh, oh, uh, 16 pages of an adventure. Um, it's old school. It really is an old school mm, dungeon okay. delve. Right, right. Because um, just from listening to what you were saying there, I got, again, um, sort of visions of Ten Candles, which is a, a game where you will die, but it's a, it is a completely narrative game there's very little rules in it the rules in it are there simply to encourage your narration rather than anything else so it's very different yeah obviously. actually that 10 candle thing is in it uh, let me explain a little bit more about the mechanic i i mentioned the uh, the calendar in there that has six prophecies yeah. and the seventh one when you're dead there's a there's a sort of mechanic around that that is kind of fun i think or would be in that uh, uh the gm actually you know creates adventures you know in dungeons all sorts of stuff uh, that are typical fantasy fair but at the start of every session you roll a dice and if you get a one on that dice die i should say then one of the um one of the six prophecies happens you roll that one randomly right and and the die you roll is by agreement with the players so if you want a long campaign you roll a percentile dice. <laughs> okay. And then you've got years of pain. And it's only if you roll um, a one where the prophecy comes to comes if, to fruition. Exactly, yeah. Right, uh, right, and right. if you've got a you, you got a uh, you you want to run something for six months, a bleak half year, you roll a D twenty. Yep. If you want a season, a fall in anguish, roll a D ten. Okay. A cruel month, roll a D six. Or the end is nigh, you roll a, a D2. D4. So a D2, okay. <laughs> Not even a D4. <laughs> Not even a D4. Um, so uh, I quite like that little... That's one of the little mechanics. I thought, oh, it'd be fun to play this and yeah. then just have a D6 or something. <laughs> but, um, but we don't play enough. We've got, we've got too many too games many we need to play. To play yeah. This is not one. I mean, maybe, maybe if for some reason we want to do a, I don't know, a, a special at some point, if... If uh, uh, one of our other games is cancelled for some reason, we need something on the fly. Mm. But even then, I think I'd prefer to do another um, Tales from the Loop or Things from the Flood, really, Yeah. in that situation. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, sometimes it's fine just to buy a game just because you love the game, the look yes. of the game, the book. You know, So I've got a lot of books on my shelf, gaming books that I've I've never played and never expect to, but I bought them because they are beautiful bits of 
creative artwork. Yeah, and I did wonder actually whether my uh, boy might play it with his group at some mm, point. I'll cool. introduce it to him. Shall we move on? Yeah, I think we've got a, a, a quick players in the Hammam discussion to have, haven't we? Which is relevant to our conversation earlier. Yeah, we're moving earlier. on and we're moving back, back to Dragon Meat. Back to Dragon Meat. Okay, well, let, let's listen to, to you talking to um, Mira from the podcast zone. So I'm at Dragon Meat and I'm with Mira. Hello. <laughs> and Mira, tell me, who are you and what makes you famous? Okay, so there's a long list of things that makes me famous. Are You're you a ready? very famous person. Um, I used to be in bands when I was younger. Oh, cool. Played Reading Festival, did that kind of thing. That sort of band when yeah. you were younger. When I was younger. Huge. Uh, then as I got older, I wrote a book. So I'm an author, published author. Wow. But the reason we're talking today is because today I'm running podca- the podcast zone at Dragon Meat. And it's been a great podcast zone. We are entirely exhausted. We are completely drained. <laughs> I don't know why we're doing this now. We're so it's tired. It's the end of the day, but, <laughs> but this is this is this is cinema verite. This is, this is uh, and so uh, yeah. Um, now uh, Dave and I have been manning the free league stand for some time. Dave, uh, we we have come down here to be part of the podcast zone. We ran Grindbone, yes. which might be surrounding. This very interview, I don't know quite how I'll edit it all together. We'll but, see uh, how it all fits in. <laughs> uh, uh, so, but we haven't been actually in the meet and greet, friendly no. chat area of the podcast so very much. So how has it gone? What's your impression okay. of Dragon Meat and of the podcast scene? So Dragon Meat is my favourite convention ever. It was my first kind of convention as a gamer that I came to. I went to Star Trek conventions when I was little. Mm-hmm. My dad used to take me to kind of, you know, all kinds of geeky conventions, but... Dragon Meat is my convention. Dragon Meat is the start of Christmas, and I love it. I I love all the volunteers. I say hi to them every year because they're just the kindest, most awesome, passionate people. The podcast zone at Dragon Meat is an opportunity to gather together podcasters who are into gaming, so they might play games on their podcast or interview game makers or even be creating their own games, just anything to do with our passion, our shared passion. And... Um, They've always had a space the last two or three years at Dragon Meat. This year, I was asked to organise it. So the main thing about the podcast zone is bringing together all these podcasts, introducing them to each other, because as you know, when you do a podcast, it's normally you and two mates in a room. Mm -hmm. Here, we've got 24 different podcasts, and they're all chatting, they're all networking, they're planning to play on each other's podcasts. How many times can I say the word podcast? We can say podcasts (laughs) a lot in the podcast zone. (laughs) And... um, not only that, but the podcast zone has been running games for attendees of the conference here. Um, and it's just a really great space to show this is a new burgeoning creative field where people are creating amazing content like as a result of their love of gaming. So we're trying to make a, a space where the general public can come and see them and learn about things they might love to listen to. And the podcasters get to be together to kind of galvanise their ideas and work together and become this network of friends. So it's a really lovely area to look after. Brilliant. And um, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but uh, we've been to the podcast zone for a couple of years with Callum organising yes. it from the release podcast. <laughs> um, what do you think you've brought to this year's show? Um, <laughs> okay, so let's go deep. Um, I feel my uh, philosophy of life is that life is suffering. The only reason we humans are here together is to try and alleviate each other's suffering and bring more joy to each other's lives. 
So what I wanted to do was everyone who came to bring a podcast and do work here with us was going to have a lovely time. They were going to make friends. There were going to be so many opportunities for them to record things, interview people, some amazing quiet spaces to do gaming in. Bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. But their, um, ne- their needs were taken care of. My job was to make us an amazing safe space, invite some wonderful people and make sure everyone had a really happy nurturing day. And I feel like we've had a lot of love and nurturing today. It feels that way to me as well. And so, I've got to say about those quiet spaces. Yes. Uh, last year and the year before, the, every single podcast was crammed for a tiny slot into one small room from yes. which they made the PA announcements. Yes. And here we are. We're, we're luxuriating in space here. I know. This is one of three or four rooms that you had? This is three, one of three rooms. Yeah. And we've had, uh, you know, you could fit 40 people in one of the rooms they've given us if you had them all sat in a row. So we've had the luxury, thank you so much, Dragon Me, of three spaces just for podcasts. And so we've had a paint-along with a, a Geek Girl bookworm. Yeah, and she's a friend of the show. She's been on the show yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, friend of the pod. <laughs> and we've had, um, we've had, you know, horrors being played out. We've had your show. Yeah. And just a really nice spread of, you know, various diverse gamers. Uh, so it's been amazing. Hopefully next year. This is my wish. Next year we'll have even more space. And we will get to do some live audience podcasting. Mm. So kind of a show feel where we are part of the entertainment. And also this year we had 18 feet of table. Yeah, Like 18 <laughs> feet. feet. Yeah. And we've had like 20 chairs. So previously we've had two or three tables. So Dragon Meat have been amazing this year. And I feel it may be because I've been on the phone to them. I started really big and I was like, I'd like to bring down Nightmare Live and I want Adventures Wanted to, Adventurers Wanted to come and perform. And John was like, okay, pull back a bit. <laughs> but he has been amazing. I've literally checked in with Dragon Meat. They've said, I've said what I've needed and they've kind of trusted me. And hopefully when you came in, you saw all the posters, the signage, we have the banners. So we're growing. We're kind of becoming toddlers now. So. Brilliant. Brilliant. Now... That's not the reason I called you in here. Coriolis! So, yeah, we we were having a drink yesterday, in in the day before Dragon Meat, when we were so much less tired than we are now. (laughs) And uh, you just happened to mention that you play Coriolis. And I said, we're a podcast about Coriolis, and we have to interview you. So, how long have you been playing Coriolis? I've played three sessions of Coriolis. So far? So far. We... We, I come from a group that has been very, very steeped in 5th edition for many, many, for maybe what, two, three years. And everyone wanted to play a sci-fi game. Um, Coriolis was something that we'd all kind of heard about. And um, our brave friend, Ipek, she took on the book herself. And she's started, um, yeah, she's been our game master recently. Yeah. It's so very different to uh, the 5th edition that we've been playing, but we're really enjoying it. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit about your character? So my name's Mira, so obviously I'm from the planet Mira. Mira. Yeah, the and system of Mira. Yeah. System, oh God, see I'm so new, sorry. <laughs> Don't send hate like mail. I think, I think, which is named after the planet of Mira. Okay. <laughs> and I'm Mia Lee, because mm. I like to keep it all sounding very similar. And I am a musician, mm. because I normally play a bard. Yes. So I also love being the face. I love being able to be charismatic and talk a lot when we when we game. But the brilliance of Coriolis is that 
a couple of people in our fifth edition who were not that vocal. So now one of them is Max Powers, the pilot. Oh, right. And we have to restrain him from doing donuts. Like, <laughs> he says things like, I speed as far as I can up to the ship and I pull like an inch from the hull to show them how great, you know, and that is his main thing. Max Power is a pilot. And another really quiet player we have called Pre, he's taken on the role of a ship intern. so he basically uh you know will follow whichever character is doing the action and you know just be learning and you know helping out all the time and that's given him away to kind of like ship's intern he's kind of carved this role out and then you know other players will be like who gets the intern today because in engineering (laughs) we're like if he helps me with this well actually i was going to have him pray in the chapel for me you know so it's been quite fun. So we're talking a little bit about mechanics here. Um, yes. You've come from D&D 5th Ed. Yes. The Coriolis mechanics are very different. How's everybody coping with that? Well, everybody in the game, uh, every single player in that game is way better at mechanics than me. Right, okay. Luckily, we're playing on Roll20. Yeah. So I have my little D6 mm-hmm. and people say, oh, Mira, roll three D6 now. So I'm getting quite a lot of instruction. All I know is to beware of darkness points and try not to give them to the GM. Yeah. Last session, none of us gave her any <laughs> darkness points. She was furious. So we're coming to grips with having to give that power away. Yeah. So alien to us. But um, what I love about the system is it actually feels, this is going to sound stupid, it actually feels like a sci-fi based system. Yeah. It really lends itself to that kind of Star Trek feel. or I don't know if that makes sense, but... Um, and also only having a D6. Mm. Like, you know, what about my strange knobbly ones and my caltrops, my D4s? You'll have to get into Forbidden Lands if you want some knobbly ones as well. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, no caltrops in there, but we've got D8s and D, D10s and D12s. I'm willing to be led to the Forbidden Lands. Yeah, that would yeah. be a lovely thing maybe to do next time. But just um, coming back to something you mentioned, you talked about prayer. Yeah. And, you know, get the intern to prayer in the chapel. Uh, one of the things I love about it is how prayer is built into the mechanics and the, yes um, the gods yeah and yeah. they are like very very helpful except when they're not exactly. and also i don't i haven't got my head around this but there are two types of tribes one tribe made up these gods yeah is that right broadly speaking i think we don't know quite so you're talking about the first come and the, and the zenithians yes and the zenithians i think are meant to be kind of colonials yes who are arriving in this place and, and sort of exerting their power over yeah. the... The already established... Indigenous. I mean, not yeah. really indigenous because they... They just got there earlier. They just got there first. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that... But I feel that's the sort of feel we're meant to go for. And yeah, it feels to me that the the first come have loaned their culture to the yes. Zenithians and the Zenithians have just bought into it. It's a very interesting yeah. dynamic, isn't it? Yeah. I quite like that. I find it interesting. I like the idea that you get your own deity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it reminds me of the old days of muds. I don't know if you've ever played yeah. them, but you, if you had a, a certain deity in a mud, it was actually a person, a systems admin. Right. And you could be like, Merlin, help, help me. me. And, and they would send help. Yeah. So I really love that resonance because I'm really old. I don't know if I'm giving that <laughs> away now. Ah! <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love that it's got this mythology. Yeah. In fifth edition, you can have a god. But you don't go into that background. You don't have this culture to kind of spring-load your gameplay off. Yeah, there's very little in a lot of role-playing games that make you want to go to church. Yes. And I, you know, I was saying to somebody as I was selling Coriolis to them uh, earlier on today, 
that I've, I've played Pendragon yeah. for 30 years and in, Knights in Pendragon are very pious Christians. Yeah. Never once, never. I feel, have I ever gone to church never taken, in game. Never taken a knee but, for an actual god in but that But in, 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 in Coriolis, it just encourages you to visit the chapel yeah. and to pray to the icon before you're doing something and, and earn the benefits of that. And I love that. I love yeah. That. Right, okay. I've taken your time long enough. Thank We've got to you. be closing down the um, uh, the podcast zone very oh, shortly, I, know. I guess. Yes, time so, to go home. Is there anything you want our listeners to check out before you oh, do gosh. of your work or have you got a podcast of your own, own or whatever? I, I would really encourage my, uh, well, anyone who's listening, check out the podcast zone. We're at Podcast Zone UK on Twitter and we just have such a great range of podcasters. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be really great if you had a little look and see, see people you'd love to listen to. Um, I do do my own podcast. It's called the Girls on Tour podcast, but it's not necessarily about gaming. Not about gaming, no. No, although I did interview Satine Phoenix. Ah. But um, I would say if you're a podcast fan, please let it be known. Review, tell your friends, five stars are all super important. It's a baby burgeoning culture. There are a lot of voices out there. So if you find one that you love, please five star it. And then you'll have made a fairy live or something. <laughs> That's but brilliant. Also, if you ever need someone to come and play, I'd love to play a game of Coriolis with you guys, just saying. Okay. <laughs> we'll make that happen at some point. And I've got to interview your GM, obviously, to get yes. her angle on it too. She's going to tell you what an awful player I am, but that's fine. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Every, we, we like lots of diverse voices. <laughs> anyway, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Mira. And we'll sign out. Thank you. So it's really good to hear... Mirrors take there on a lot of stuff. Um, but the first thing I would say is that the podcast zone was a great success this year. I think. I mean, it was a great success in previous years, but the the location where we were was better. I think. I mean, other podcasters would 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 tell us whether they liked it. Um, because actually we weren't there very much. I mean, I was down there. No, sim- we ought to be simply... fair and say that we, we didn't do our our service in the podcast zone as a whole, did we? Because we were running other, other, the... Um... Other than running our, our recording um, elements for the for the tournament, no, because we were on the Free League booth. We were obviously mm. not down there very much. But certainly going there, it was... Even though the, the actual podcast zone sort of front door was on in a sort of a, a small hallway between levels... I thought that worked quite well because you had to walk past them to go from the main trade hall up to the main gaming halls and the second trade hall. Yeah, absolutely. So you couldn't couldn't miss them. Um, And also, that was kind of the front door to a little suite of rooms which were really well set up, um, which most of them were there for podcasters to to use. So I thought that setup worked really well, even though um, I don't know how it felt sitting in that hallway all that time. but it looked good to me from the from 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 where from when I went down there. Yeah, I think it was good. Remember the first year we went, we were right by the entrance again, yeah. sitting in the hallway with absolutely everybody coming past us. But that was just a couple of tables against the wall. It didn't really work terribly well. Yeah, because people just walked past us. Nobody really knew what you know. I think what what we were, what was on offer, and you were right in the thoroughfare. So if you stopped, you just blocked everybody behind you. The whole place was just crammed with people. So that did, that didn't work so well. The second year, last year, we were in a in a room which actually was the trade hall for us this year, trade hall two on the upper floor, um, and that was better. But then we were kind and of we were just too, about the only people there. We were kind of too far away then, though. So it's better space yes. to be in, but there was no footfall. Um, so I think this place of the three options was was by far the best one.
Absolutely. Um, but also, I mean, I think you know, Mira was very, very patient, um, certainly with us, because we, we were overrunning. She did quite a lot to to facilitate our lack of organisation in, in running the podcast, the, the Grindbone 2183 tournament in the time that we'd originally been given. So I think, you know, she gave it a really nice feel and a really nice sense. She never looked angry or upset or was never telling anybody off. Was always there trying to facilitate and make it work, you know, keep everybody happy, which I thought was really good. And that was, it was a great job. Well done. I sincerely hope she's uh, going to be involved in it next year because it worked, it worked really, really well. Um, and great to hear that she plays Coriolis as well, especially. Uh... That, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So who doesn't want to play Coriolis? I encourage all all players players to play Coriolis, especially if all you've played is D and D. Go and have go and have a go at Coriolis. Talking Mirror being so uh, accommodating with us overrunning, I notice we are overrunning, and we still have a whole article to go. Your essay on another alien request, actually one that I spotted yep. on the um, on the Free League forum, where um, somebody there, and I should have noted their name, said. What happens when an alien does their special attack on somebody who's an android? Mm. It's a good question. Oh, but, is it? Because I was rather hoping you had the answer. But luckily, I have the answer, I was about to say, before you <laughs> chipped in. Right, well, uh, let's, let's hear what I've got to say about that. Some fans have asked a question about androids, synthetics, and how they are affected by the signature attacks of the xenomorphs. It's a really good question. Some signature attacks inflict stress and panic rolls. Others see the target getting throttled and in game mechanics terms suffering the effects of drowning. Other signature attacks, if successful, automatically inflict a specific critical hit on the poor victim. But how do these attacks affect a synth? Well, we could leave it up to individual GMs to rule for themselves and with a little look at the synthetic critical hit table on page 111 of the book, it shouldn't be too hard for a GM to work out on the fly what might be a suitable substitute for a human's critical hit. But as I wrote the original signature attacks, I feel honour bound to answer your questions. What I'm offering is focused specifically on the XX121 xenomorphs, but the rules here can easily be applied to the neomorphs and abominations, as well as the other extrasolar species in the book, the swarm, harvesters, tanacan scorpionids, and lionworms. In thinking about synths in the game, the first thing that came to my mind was this. Do aliens automatically sniff out a synthetic person? My take on it, because I thought this was more fun, was that Xenos wouldn't be able to detect this, until and unless they tried to attack them. And this gave me the idea for an egg-gathering squad of synthetics who deliberately get facehugged in order to capture live eggs from facehuggers. But sadly, if you want to follow the canon, which of course in your game you don't have to, this isn't the case. I had a brief chat with the lore expert for the franchise and the setting writer of the alien RPG, Andrew Gasker, and he told me that the Xenos can see straight through a synth and aren't fooled for a moment. But this doesn't mean they don't attack them, of course. If a synth is a threat, then it's just as likely to be eviscerated by a xenomorph as the next man or woman. It just means that facehuggers won't bother trying to impregnate a synthetic person, and an adult xeno might ignore them until they become a threat. I say might, deliberately. 
But back to damage and signature attacks. Naturally enough, synths take damage in the normal way, so any signature attack that includes an attack roll may damage the synth, as will an acid splash. But for specific signature attacks, handle them in the following ways. Obviously, if the synth is immune to the effect of an attack, for example, take stress or make a panic roll or suffer the effects of drowning, these are ignored. This includes the chestburster's birth display that otherwise shocks witnesses, causing them to roll for panic. The attack called Capture for the Hive, which is attack number five for a stage four xenomorph, stalker, scout, or drone, or attack number four for a stage five, which is a soldier, worker, or sentry. This attack does damage, but otherwise has no effect. A xenomorph that makes this attack against a synth will look to inflict maximum damage rather than pull the attack to inject venom. It knows that the venom will have no effect. For the facehugger tail grapple attack, which is attack number four uh, for the facehugger, a roll of five or a six on the type of tail grapple cannot choke or panic a synth. And attack number six for a facehugger, the final embrace. The facehugger can successfully use a full facehug against a synth as an attack. The synth isn't broken though, but is blinded as the hugger is covering the synth's eyes. The face hugger will hang on until a good moment to let go and flee presents itself. But otherwise, it may be impossible to remove without acid damage to the synth. Make an acid splash attack if it's cut free. Moving on to chest bursters. So there are two attacks here that would apply. So attack number five, the leg slash. The synth suffers a critical injury, but it's number two of the synth critical injury table instead of the listed injury for a person and the chestburster throat bite, which is attack number six. Roll on the synth crit table. A result of six counts, and the synth's head is smashed. But otherwise, apply crit number four. The head is dislocated. Moving on to the head bite attack, which is attack number six for stage four, five, and six xenomorphs. Roll on the synth crit table. Again, a roll of six counts, and the synth's head is smashed. Otherwise, apply crit number four, and the head is dislocated. The other attacks that are still left to consider are stage six attacks, and these are Praetorian, Crusher, and the Queen. For attack number three, which is Beastly Bite, just roll 1d6 on the synth crit table. For attack number four, Crushing Blow, roll three times on the synth crit table and apply all the results. And finally, for attack number five, the tail spike, the synth suffers critical hit number six from the table and is torn in two by the blow. In effect, it does a bishop. That all feels about right and narratively satisfying. I'll post this up on my blog, rpggods.org, so you can have a printed version if you want one. And I hope that helps. Yeah, you make the point that um, uh, this is a kind of... Uh, a an improvisational task if if uh, if you're confronted with this in play and you haven't got this lovely stuff that you've set out here in front of you you would have to improvise what does that what effect does that alien attack have on an alien on on an android i should say yeah um so the game does require you to maybe improvise but it's helpful that you've created these 
these are all sort of people who might be less experienced at doing that sort of improv. Being yeah, GMs. I was just going to say that because I, I think having been GMing now for 40 odd years, kind of forget what it was like to be an old man. <laughs> forget what it's like to be a young, new GM sort of treading the treading the GMing boards for the first time. And where some of us might just go, oh, we'll make something up on the fly and are totally comfortable with that. I could totally get where some people would be going, okay, I'm a new GM, where's the rules for this? I'm not quite sure what to do here. So actually having the rules set out um, to guide those people who want a bit of guidance or, or you know, or just a nice, easy way of managing it in the game, then, um, yeah, that, that's... That, that's that's a good thing to do. So I'm glad. I'm glad the question was raised, and I'm I'm glad I've taken the time to have a quick look at, at at what we could do here. The one thing I haven't done is done specifically looked at the neomorphs and the abominations and the extrasolar species uh, to say, well, for this particular attack type, this is what happens to a synth. But actually, what I've done here for the XX one twenty ones is easily applicable to those. So you should just be able to cross-refer if um if you've got a harvester doing something horrible to a synth and it gives a uh, a critical hit then just refer to this yeah. and that'll guide you in the right direction i guess so yeah and yeah. i think there is it does make a larger point so we you know we've, we've already played this quite a lot and also i'm noticing in the in the social media that people are kind of going no this panic table is not very extensive after a you know, a few games, the same panic keeps coming up and maybe it gets a bit boring. Mm. And I think it is beholden as we get more experienced DMing it to maybe be able to improvise different panics that are more situational and to get a feel for what the effect of a, a level nine panic is, as it were, compared to a level 14. Yeah. And then create something similar in, in impact, but not necessarily the same as that, the same wording that's used in that panic table every time. Yes, I think that's a really good point. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's thrown into sharp relief because we've played a lot of cinematic games and players are playing cinematic games at the moment. So therefore, you're going to get a lot of panic and you're going to roll the same things quite a lot. The same thing applies, I think, also to the signature attacks. So if you are having a, mm. a lot of cinematic games where you've got xenomorphs in there, you come across those signature attacks quite frequently now when i was listening back and editing the grindbone tournament that we did in dragon meat doing that is actually a really good thing for me because it can it picks out parts of my gming performance that i think i could have done better now yeah i noticed all of those (laughs) we can all improve matthew we can all improve um but particularly i think so what you should do as a gm with those signature attacks is not necessarily kind of read out the text or even have the attackers exactly the same, but it's that style of attack. And as you get more familiar with what they are, then you can you can um, sort of narrate a different approach to that kind of signature attack rather than having it exactly the same every single time. And I think that's, a, yeah. that's something that a GM will be able to pick up as they get more familiar with the rules and are more comfortable with the game system. And the same thing obviously applies to the panic table as well. Yeah. I do wonder whether actually, you know, there could have been a little paragraph in there that says exactly what you've just said. Use these tables to begin with, but you'll, you know, over time, you'll be able to improvise similar levels of uh, damage that are more situational or something. But never mind. 
we're telling you this now with our oh, years of experience. <laughs> Well, and we've played quite a lot of alien games. We've played a lot. We? I mean, I, I, yeah, there's probably not many people in the world who've played Alien more than we have, actually. Um, right. I would guess. I know. I'm ready to stop playing Alien now. Uh, I'm, I'm play still, some more Coriolis. I'm again. still really enjoying it. Well, I just need more time to play everything because I want to play yeah. more Coriolis as well, and Forbidden Lands, and Simba Room, and Blades in the Dark, and. Uh, Star Trek and uh, L5R. Maybe and even Merkball <laughs> one day. And even Merkball one day. Yeah. Good. Well, now, I, but, I, uh, but I hope that piece is useful. And if there's any feedback or any other thoughts from anybody, please fire it back into us. Um, we'd love to get uh, responses from our from our listeners to what we're putting out there and fresh ideas. And this, I guess, is going to be the last of our magazine episodes for this year before Christmas. I suspect it will be. Yes, sadly. So all those ambitions for games you want to play or carry on playing are going to be New Year's resolutions, I'm sure, <laughs> in in January. But between now and then, we've got... I think you're away for a lot of Christmas, aren't you? So I think I'll try and find some time maybe to edit the uh, the second part of Song to the Siren and put that up as an actual play. Excellent. Um, I, then... I, I will have time. I, I still intend. So we've we've got Alien Aurora recorded. There's quite a lot of it, so it's going to be quite an edit for that one. But I intend to try and crack on with that. So I might try and get episode one of that ready before Christmas. But um, fingers crossed. I'll do my best. Okay. Well, so e- either either some form of science fiction, either Coriolis-like or alien-like, will be out uh, around Christmas. And then I guess so we haven't actually scheduled any date so i don't know when we're going to record again in january but we will record again in january so until then enjoy the actual plays that we put up and um have a great christmas have a wonderful or christmas. winter festival of your own choosing indeed anything else we need to say uh just god yule ah that'll be in swedish won't it, it? if i all the swedish listeners are like now slapping their hands on their faces going oh my god how badly pronounces that <laughs> until the middle of January then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him and may the icons bless your adventures you have been listening to the effect podcast presented by fiction suit and the RPG gods music stars on a black sea used with permission of free league publishing